So Luke chapter 20, verse 27. And um, it's kind of interesting when we looked at this, you have Jesus, he's come into Jerusalem, the triumphal infantry, he's there and he cleans out the, the people, ripping people off in the temple, drives them out, and he's there in the temple daily teaching the people. And as he's doing this, the, the Jewish leaders are seeking to destroy him. And they've come in, they've questioned his authority, they kind of give him this answer. He says, okay, well, John the Baptist, if, if, if you can't tell me who he was and what his baptism was, I'm not going to answer what authority I speak. You know, they're trying to trick him into things. And then they come to him and, you know, they get... The, the last interesting thing was they kind of got together. The Pharisees and the scribes, they all came as one unit planning and plotting to get rid of Jesus, right? And when you, when you have two different groups, that would be like the Democrats and the Republicans all decided to come together against this common cause, and they came up with this brilliant, well-thought-out, paid-for, planned attack. And, and, you know, these spies that came in and very buttering up Jesus in that sense and asking him about whose taxes. Do you, you know, who, are we supposed to pay taxes to Rome or or to Caesar, or, or should we pay taxes to God? What are we supposed to do? Figuring there is no good answer to this question. And Jesus asking one of the guys to pull out a denarii, which he didn't have any, we would assume, pulls out and says, okay, whose image is on that? That's Caesar's, that's his. And who's on you? God's on, you know, your heart. And, and what belongs to God is God's. And he answers them. And so they're all kind of baffled and and. Uh, just like put to silence. They thought for sure this was going to work. All the research said this would be the trap question, and it failed. And so now, as we start in verse 27 here, we see them split up. You know, you had the Sadducees and the scribes, and now they decide, okay, we're going to have to take our own point of view at this. You can imagine if you got together with two different groups and they wanted to complain about an issue, there are certain issues they wouldn't be on the same page on, so they didn't go with those. Now the Sadducees decide, okay, we're going to bring our theology and put it before him and prove he's wrong and either get him to join us, you know, we're, we're going to make it, he's either going to have to agree with us at least, you know. If you're going to have a divide, right now you have Israel and two divides in a sense. You have the Sadducees and the scribes that people are looking to and under the Roman rule. So it's like, okay, maybe this Jesus is going to take a place in, in the authority here, and maybe he'll have something, but we're not going to lose our portion. We'll just make sure the scribes lose their portion. And the scribes are thinking, fine, maybe we'll just give him the Sadducee section and let the, you know, him take over that group of people, as long as we still get our cut. you know. And, and so we see that kind of this morning in verse 27. And um, so it's kind of interesting, and if the, the title, which I usually don't come up with, would be The Resurrection is Real. And so we're going to look at some things regarding the resurrection that Jesus brings up and some stuff he kind of enlightens about uh, this because of what the Sadducees believe. It says in verse 27, and Luke kind of gives it away there, it says, Then some of the Sadducees who denied that there is a resurrection came to Jesus and asked him. So you have these Sadducees, uh, this group, this sect, of people, and, and really the name is, Sadducee is like the priestly party, is what it would kind of translate to. Um, they kind of trace it back to the family of Zadok and this, this group of family. And they were the ruling power that was working or okay with working with Rome. 
So they, had, they didn't have a problem working with the Romans as long as they kept their power and authority. You know, Rome comes in, okay, fine, we're not going to be king, but can we rule under you? And so they're, they're Jewish people, their leaders are supposed to be this priestly line, but they're very liberal and it's something you are for our position, but not really something we're going to really worry about. We, you know, if it gets us favor with, with Rome, then yeah, we'll get rid of that theology. They're very flexible because they're more about the money and power and position. And you kind of see that with some of the liberal Christian theologies out there today and some of this stuff. But the main things to remember about the Sadducees is, which kind of baffles me, they, they focused only on the first five books of the Old Testament, the Bible that they believed in. Okay, they didn't believe in any of the others. They didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead, so they didn't believe in immortality, that, that a soul lives forever. Okay, they didn't believe in angels or spirits at all. And so it's kind of interesting. It's like, how can you believe in the Bible and not believe in, okay, it's, you know, I, I can't wrap my mind around it, but they, they obviously did. And so they have this point of view, and when you have that point of view that there's nothing after this life, what are you focused on? This life. There's no accounting, there's no this, there's no that. I mean, which is all kind of odd when you talk about a relationship with God in that sense. But, so that's these men. They didn't believe in the resurrection. And so verse 28, they come to him asking him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote that if to us, or wrote to us, that if a man's brother dies having a wife, and he dies without a child, his brother should take his wife, and raise up an offspring for his brother. So this was a common practice even uh, back then, not just with the Jewish people, even currently was if you had an older brother, he marries, marries a woman. They're, why they're married, they don't have an, a son, which would then take over and take care of the mom and the family and the state. He would inherit it. So if they die without a son, if he dies without the son, the next brother that wasn't married would take her as his wife until there was a male offspring produced to continue the heritage. And it's kind of, um, it, it's a Leverite union is what it's caused, called. And so this was common practice in, in some countries today. It's still somewhat practiced in, in, in different areas. I, I know my um, neighbor from Pakistan, when his first wife passed away, he went back to Pakistan and married the next sister who wasn't married. It's like, I don't know if that's like a warranty deal on a relationship. One dies, you get turned or traded in. I don't know. Lemon law thing or something. I don't know. But anyway, it's kind of just interesting. You know, and for us, it's just, it's odd. I mean, for us in our culture, the way we think of marriage is totally odd. So, you know, you have this common tradition, though, of how that would happen. And especially in Israel, because the land and the promise of God, which was given to the nation, was to be passed down in inheritance. And so if somebody died without a son to pass it to, and that woman was to go remarry somebody out of the country, now it lets a foreigner in. It doesn't keep that line. If you remember the whole nation of Israel, it was divided up between the tribes, each plot of land, each area. Besides the tribe of Levi and the priests and those things, everybody had a possession. And so if a child died, your family, your, you would possibly leave that possession. And so can keep that inheritance, keep those things in their order that was really put together. It did, um, you know, you didn't have, I'm sure, the single dating websites. I mean, it's like, okay, husband passed away. You just look down, the, okay, who's the next brother in line? It's really solved a lot of internet issues we have these days. But so he's sitting there and we're looking at these things 
And they've come to them with this thought. This is what Moses wrote us. This is the commandment we were given. This is how we're supposed to deal with that. And so you come into it, in verse 29, they bring up this scenario, and they say, Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without a child. The second took her as a wife, and he died with childless. And then the third took her, in like manner, seven also. They, they left no child and died. And so she marries one, he dies. She marries the next, she dies. She marries the next, she dies. And the next common thing you would do is call the police. Okay, you, <laughs> she's got seven dead guys there, calls the police. But and look, look with me in verse 32, at last of all, the woman also dies. So never mind, justice. No, I mean, I like what Dave Guzik says is, man, somebody needs to get this woman cooking lessons or something, you know, like food handling license or something. You know, so they put this scenario out there that seems just like, okay, impossible. Well, what if this happens? And what if this happens? And it's not a sincere question at all. You know, there isn't a, a real sincerity. This is a question to, to make you look foolish. They're not really looking for an answer, if you would. They're throwing it out there. And they say, so therefore, in the resurrection, those, whose wife does she become? For all seven and had her. So they're all sitting there. Again, these are people that don't believe in the resurrection. And they want to know whose wife she's going to be in the resurrection. Uh. You know, she's sitting there. And so they, they throw this out. And... and it's interesting to see because in real life, there's going to be that question. There are people that their spouse has passed away. They've gotten remarried. What happens when I get to heaven in that circumstance? Or even biblically, this isn't as far-fetched, and maybe not seven brothers, but remember Tamar in the Bible? She was, she was given a husband. The first husband passed away. The father gave her, her second, the second male as her husband. He refused to basically get her pregnant and give her an offspring. So God, he passed, she, he passed away. The third child, Shamel, uh, I think. Shemel. Anyways, he, he holds his younger son. He's like, oh, he's a little young. Let's just wait until later. Dad's going, man, you've already cost me two kids. We're going to hold off a while. We're worried about you. Something's not right here. And holds off and holds off. And she realizes, hey, he's gotten old enough to get married. This isn't right. She goes and plays a harlot. She dresses up, plays a harlot. Gets, gets dad and ends up pregnant when he finds out and wants to destroy her. It's his way of getting rid of her. He goes, no, you're the dad, and solves that. So it's not kind of totally unheard of, this scenario, in that sense. But the whole point was it was a statement to make Jesus look foolish or to somebody look foolish. If you're going, oh, I believe in the resurrection. Well, what if this happens? See how unlogical that is? That just... It's foolishness. I mean, to even think of that. And instead of even understanding it, it's taking man's understanding, applying it to something. See how this isn't even possible. How, how would that, who would ever be, you know, resurrected from the dead? And, and sadly, you see that very much in our culture, in our time. I can't think of how many times it's a soundbite, right? You hear the, the debates that were going on. What's the most important thing? Nobody cares. It's if you got the better soundbite, that might not even logically make sense, but boy, does it sound, it's a zinger, you know, that little line there, you know, there. And, and even these little things, you see these pastors or these things posted online, and, and that's what it is. It's a soundbite war back between this and that. It's not a true sitting down, studying the word, and nor does anybody seem to care to study the truth. It, it's almost like, you know, it, for me, it seems like almost like, you know, kindergarten you got the little kid there garden and he comes up with a better one-liner than the other kid nobody there has a clue what they're talking about 
but you know that sounded you know better. He double dogged you, dared you compared to you know that's definitely better, you know. And and it's just it's kind of sad in that sense when you slow down and you look at that that where we most people really don't care to seek out the truth. And, and if anything, we'll agree with a little one-liner because it sounds good instead of even seeking it out or understanding it. And these guys, they figure, here, we're going to look. We'll, we'll put this out there, and we'll see what side you're on, Jesus. Either you're going to agree with us on this or not. What's, what's even funnier about this situation, if you slow down, sadly funny. Yeah, sadly funny. You think about this. There was this guy named Lazarus that Jesus rose from the dead, Right? If you're a Sadducee, that causes a problem. When you die, you don't exist anymore. You're gone. You're in annihilation. There's no ever afterlife. Now we have this guy who's been resurrected, and we don't believe in that. So do you know what the Sadducees were actively doing? Poor Lazarus. They were actively seeking out to kill him because he didn't fit their theology. So these guys come to Jesus knowing this, knowing there's a guy that's been resurrected walking around, and we're trying to kill Lazarus. Why? Because he doesn't fit our theology, right? And instead of meeting to it, well, you talk about it, and you know, like somebody pulls out this evidence, hey, here's a guy, he was dead for three days, he's risen, and we're going to kill him because that doesn't fit our theology, that doesn't fit in, that doesn't look good to us. It, it, you know, politics, I guess, hasn't changed one bit, you know, whatever it will take to get your point. And so these guys sitting there bring us out in front of Jesus. And I, and I just think, man, were they, what were they trying to do? Get, get a, half the group against him? Because you, how do you tell a guy who's raised somebody from the dead, how are you going to get him to agree with you even? You know, it's like, did you not catch the memo? Is that a different area that you didn't hear from those Sadducees over there that they're seeking after this guy? It's just interesting. And so here, though, even though this, this question is not even a real question, shouldn't even deserve a response, right? It's like, you know, can, can God make a rock? Do you believe God can do anything? Yeah, can God make a rock bigger than he can move? Like, do you, you know, I'm just not going to answer. And, and that's, many times that happens, and I'm sure you guys run into to situations where people ask you questions not because they want an answer, they want an argument. Well, what do you think about this? Or what do you think about that? And they got, you know, their arsenal of things they've already done and their one-liners. And amazingly, though, Jesus answers them. In the verse 34, it says, Jesus answered and said to them, Son, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are accounted worthy to attend that age and the resurrection from the dead neither will marry nor be given in marriage, nor can they die anymore. For they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. So here are the Sadducees who do not believe in the afterlife, resurrection, immortality, angels and spirits. God kind of throws all those things right at them, right? One sentence, we're, we're going to totally just destroy everything you think, right? Yeah. And, you know, some of you guys think, wow, so when we get to heaven, there isn't going to be marriage. We're not given in marriage. Some of you, that might sadden you. You're like, oh, but I love my spouse. Others of you, we won't talk about your opinion right now on that. We'll do marital counseling later. No. You know, you might like, Whew, I'm done. And, and, and then, I, honestly, there might be some of you very upset, actually, going, I've put up with this person for all these years. And then when they're finally perfect in heaven, they're not mine no more. I mean, just the thought. 
Um, but you see, I can get away with that because Heidi's in the nursery today. But um, you see this thing, and, and it's something to think about it. And, and it's kind of weird when you think about heaven in that sense of going, okay, so are we going to be fulfilled? What's heaven like? You know, People think, oh, we're going to be like angels around playing harps all day and these things. But the, the truth of the matter is we're going to be above the angels. The Bible declares we're going to be brought to a state above the angels. The angels have a job, and it's to serve man even now. So we're not getting to heaven, and oh, they're in heaven, and they're an angel looking down on us now. No offense to any of you guys. If I die, I'm not going to be looking down here at my funeral. I'm not going to be, I'm going to be in God's glory. Like, why would I be looking back at all? I mean, it's just little things. And, and to sit here and you look at eternity and... I mean, there's some religions, you look at Mormonism, you look at um, uh, the Muslims and how they view marriage and, and eternity. It's almost like if you lay aside all your earthly desires, so therefore you're a righteous man, when you get to heaven, they're poured out all on you. you know, all these lusts you wanted here on earth, and heaven's going to be the opposite. You're going to you know, fulfill all those things and all this. And, and it's, again, heaven isn't the same that we can see some key things about what heaven is and what heaven isn't through Scripture, but it's not relating the same. You know, when you're two years old and you get on the little Fisher-Price slide and you go down and go, wee, okay? That's a certain relation because you're in that size body, you're this size, it, it seems awesome, right? To me or anybody my size, that little Fisher-Price slide is not wee. It's like, you know, there's, there's no... I'm just not that size. I don't relate to that anymore. Now, a water slide or something like that is going to be there. Heaven is going to be so much more that even our current relationships, no matter how beautiful it is with your wife and stuff, is going to be nothing in compared to what's coming. It's going to so trumpet, you're not going to be like, hey, I'm giving up my season pass so I can buy me a Fisher Price slide. It ain't happening. And that, that is even a hundred thousand times probably greater than we could even ever imagine in those things and how we relate to stuff. And there's going to be many um, institutions that aren't there anymore, that aren't needed anymore. Marriage here is important. If we didn't get married, you wouldn't have children. If you didn't have children, what would happen in a couple genera or generation? There'd be nobody left. In heaven, it says very clearly, nobody's going to be dying. The number of people that are in heaven is fixed. There isn't more coming. There isn't there. It's there. There isn't no children. There isn't people dying. Here it would be a problem. And so these institutions and a marriage and an institution that God set up of marriage is not going to be there. All kinds of institutions. Government institutions aren't going to be there. The IRS institution isn't going to be there. Hospitals aren't going to be there. They're not going to be needed. Right? Facebook isn't going to be needed. eHarmony is not going to be needed. Tinder or any of those other things. There are a lot of institutions, including the institution of marriage, that isn't going to line up and not going to fit. And, and, you, look, and you look at these things and you go, the institution of this relationship with God is going to be so overwhelming, that primary relationship, that it, every other relationship is not going to even compare. You know, when you look at the marriage relationship, it's always compared to what? Men, love your wives as Christ loved the church. 
when we get to heaven, we are going to be right there in the presence of God, blown away in his love. We're supposed to be, if anything, trying to mimic it, and then here comes a replacement of it. It's, it's just not going to be there. And so, you know, at the same time, we can look at Scripture and we can go through it, and, and, you know, God even brings out more here, Jesus, as he teaches on with their theology. How much more, though, we're still in heaven, you're still an individual. You have the, 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 the um, story where Jesus talks about the man who's there in Hades and he wants to go back to his brothers. He understands relationships. He understands family. You're going to know your family. You're going to know who are your people. You're going to understand who they are. You look at the Mount of Transfiguration. You know what's always interesting to me about that? Here you have these guys sitting there, and they know exactly who's there. Hey, look, there's Jesus, there's Moses. They, there was no introductions. They knew exactly, well, let's build tech. How did they know their names? They're dead hundreds and hundreds of years. It's not like they had pictures. They weren't pulling up Moses' Facebook and going, oh, yeah, that's Moses. I recognize him, you know? And I've seen their paintings. They're not that good. It's just right. <laughs> You're standing there. It's like, oh, yeah, we know these guys. No. And you sit there and you look at this and you realize, okay, there's just a different way we're going to understand things. But yet they're still individuals. You're still separate. And God goes on here and, and looks at it and he goes right to the, the Scripture. Let's look right at Moses. Let me tell you. He says, verse 37, But even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised. And when he called the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and the God of Jacob, for he is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living, for all live in him. It's amazing. So Jesus sits here, and he doesn't quote a verse in a chapter because those didn't exist yet, because, hey, look, look at the burning bush. Look at what's going on here. He said he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Japheth. He didn't say he was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God of them. What's amazing, too, is they're each individual, it's not this plurality. You know, you look at Eastern religions and says, you know, you die and you become absorbed into the God of the universe. And no, you're still going to be an individual. You're still going to be a person. They're, they're still there. It's where it's kind of interesting to sit down and go, okay, what makes up who you are? Right? And their names. So if you're having a child, just think about this. If you're having a child and you're going to name a child, does that name stick with them all the way through eternity? You guys might want to rethink some of that, right? You see some of these poor kids' names. You're like, that name's with you for eternity, it seems like. I don't know if God, when you get to heaven, you can go with, you know, I rename myself. That's what my parents called me. I just want to be known by something else now. I mean, some of you guys might have done that. But you sit there and you think of these things and, and you see that there's these individuals. There are people with names. Are their identity still there? We are going to know each other. There's going to be a thing, it's not, I don't think there's going to be a line when you get to heaven of introducing. Somehow there's a knowledge of understanding who people are, and in a more intimate way, it's just kind of, it's one of those things we cannot put our mind all the way around. There are certain little things we get about it, and we can understand about it, and we can see through Scripture, but there's other things that's just like, I don't understand how that works, and I'm not going to understand how it works yet. There will be a day. You can come up and ask me later when I'm there, if you still have that question, but It'll be interesting to see, and it's amazing to see, though, how the God, God is still God. He's still the God of these people. That relationship continues on. He knows them by name. He is their God. And, and for all those who live in him, 
They're not gone. They haven't passed away. They are alive with him. Whatever thing I found really interesting in this is I've, I've, sometimes you get um, people, they want to debate things, and they go, oh, are you going to verse a theology based on an, a verb or an adverb? You know, like, you know, the Holy Spirit and the baptism of the Holy Spirit that the upon experience is different. That's just an adverb. You're going to base your whole theology on that? What did Jesus do right here? He based this whole theology on what? Jesus said, hey, he is the God. A verb. He's saying, hey, I am the God of Jesus. I am the God of Isaac. His whole argument isn't on a noun or a, you know, he's saying, look, it's a simple thing, right? It isn't just a transition word or a filler word. It was important that all those words and, and the things, so it's kind of interesting to me when you sit there and you get people who want to argue over, you know, oh, that's not this or that and this or that. Well, Jesus sure pulled it out right there, right? Well, he didn't actually say they were sitting next to him alive, but, you know, it just said, you know, he is a God, so instead of he was, you know, he just, maybe they just, you know, recorded it wrong, or no. God obviously believed in that little detail of being clear enough, Jesus did, to pull out this example that they're alive. And so, you can imagine as they sit there, and this comes out, and he brings these things out, right? In verse 39... Some of the scribes answered, saying, Teacher, you have spoken well. But after that, they did not to question him anymore. So as Jesus is sitting here, the Pharisees come at him, not believing the resurrection and everything else. Jesus calls them out and corrects them. And who's right there to say something? The people that are trying to kill him, trying to get rid of him, in verse 39 suddenly say, Oh, then some of the scribes answered and said, Teachers, you have spoken well. We disagree with everything you want to do. We've been trying to kill you. But hey, you don't like them either? <laughs> right? I'll jump on that bandwagon. Hey. You know. It's just kind of interesting. I, I mean, isn't that kind of just straight out hilarious in Scripture? Like, I just love that little fact still putting in there. I mean, it's just like little children. Right? Oh, but if you're going to put him down, I'll be on your side now. But yet, they still knew better than to ask any questions, right? It's like, okay, right now, we're good. Jesus just put down the Sadducees. They look dumb. We're starting to look better here. Let's just not say anything. We might make it out of this okay, right? We, we can still walk away with, you know, 10% of the people or something, you know. But yeah, Jesus doesn't just leave it there, does he? He says, Jesus says, he's going to ask them a question, right? In verse 41, he says to them, how can you say that the Christ is the son of David. Now David himself said in the book of Psalms, Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore David calls him Lord. How is it then is his son? So in their culture, very clearly, you would never have a child lording over a parent. Okay, I know that's shocking, but... In their culture, that would just never happen, right? And so he asked these scribes here, you sit down there and write all these things out. I want, I'm going to challenge you on who I am. They want to talk about the resurrection and all this. I'm going to challenge you. I want you to open up. i got a question for you. Here, you answer me this. I want you to think about it. I want you to see what does this mean. I want you to know who I am, right? He doesn't just leave them there. He doesn't 
stop. I mean, at this point, I'd be very frustrated with him. It seems like, okay, guys. But he just asked them this question going, who am I then? Who am I? Many times I think God continues to do that in our lives with simple things. So you get in a situation and God goes, hey, well, what about this and what about this? Who am I? Who am I? You know, um, those, those little things that just sometimes make a huge difference that, I, I mean, they don't even have to be great things. Little struggles, you sit down and go, God, I don't understand. And God goes, who am I? Have you ever done that in your life? You get in a situation, and sometimes it's minor things, sometimes it's major things, you know, hospitals, illness, and those things, and you ah, God, and God goes, who am I? In the Bible, it says what? Who am I? Is that who I am? You've said that's who I am. Do you know that's who I am? And so he just kind of asks it, and he throws it out there for them, because he desires for them to know him. And, and many times, you know, obviously, if you were sitting there in that group, people go, Jesus is so harsh. I mean, nowadays we'd call this hate speech. Wouldn't it be hate speech? I mean, he's sitting there in this group of people. You have these religious people. They're trying hard. They've been ruling. And I mean, they have, this one group's dealing with Rome. You have the scribes there. And, you know, they're trying hard. And does Jesus really need to call them out in front of everybody? Apparently so. Apparently he's going to tell them some hard truths, make them think. You know, he's not really worried about how that made them feel. Did he ever ask, I'm going to ask you a question if it doesn't make you feel bad. No. He straight out, I mean, he says it. He says it the way it is because the desire is, I want you to know me. I want you to know truth because there is an eternity. Because there is a resurrection. Because there is something to come. And not only that, even with these scry or these Sadducees, how many of them you think understood that? What's going to happen very soon? They're denying a resurrection. Jesus says there's going to be a resurrection even before he is resurrected. It's going to be really important to understand your theology's wrong here in a couple of days. Extremely important to understand your theology's wrong here in a couple of days. And I'm going to be truthful with that. And so he sits there and he, and he says it. And then again, just to make sure he's not hurting anybody's feelings, verse 45 then in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, loving greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, the best places at feast, and who devour widows' houses. For a pretense make long prayers. These will receive a greater condemnation. So just in case anybody's feelings weren't hurt in this group, he kind of calls them all out again. And I guess if you're there and you are a scribe and you don't have long robes and you aren't doing these things, you shouldn't be offended, right? But if this is you, he's just straight out called them out, right? And so these, these men desired righteousness, in a sense, by men. They're worried just as much as the Sadducees were worried about this life and how they were viewed in this life, and there would be no eternal life, at least that makes logical sense in the way they were behaving, right? If this is it, you better get everything you can, YOLO, whatever you want to say, which, you know, you might as well live it all up because next, tomorrow, tomorrow's gone. You know, it, it always baffles me. Some of these, you know, I had a, I had a friend who... Um, was always getting in trouble, always getting locked up for something, and there were stupid things. There were just dumb things. You, 
left a party drunk with somebody, you got in the back of their car, intoxicated, passed out. When you woke up, the car was crashed into other cars and it happened to be stolen. You were the last one there. So you're going to jail for stealing a car. And it's like, dude, if you're going to make a life out of spending some time in jail, let's sit down and talk, bro. We could rob a bank, maybe get away with some money. I mean, there are better ways to do this. If you're going to destroy your life, let's just do it right. You know what I mean? And you see some people that, like, if you're not going to submit to God, why try to live a moral life and put yourself through this mess? Especially if you don't believe you're even going to exist after this life. I mean, logically, it's there. But here, these guys, they're running around trying to live for this life and everything else to make it, oh, let's, let's look righteous. Let's, I'm going to deny myself. I'm going to do all these things. So I, I get these accolades. So I look righteous. So I have this thing. I, you know, this, this persona. But yeah, I believe in the afterlife, but I, I don't, con, you know, I'm obviously not concerned or, or, or care to, for an account of it. You know, and it, it, it's interesting to see their self-righteousness here and, and Jesus calling them out on it. And, and even this term, I mean, you go through and you look at, okay, they like to be sitting in the right place and this and this. How do you devour a widow's house? not talking about physically eating. I mean, how do you devour it? I mean, I guess there's all kinds of ways. By trickery, by taking advantage, legal, maybe taking a court, or, or talking them out of it, you know. One of the things said about the scribes was they, they, they had said and repeatedly said, one of the most holy things you could do was give to a scribe. That was one of the most righteous, holy things you could do. See, because a scribe wasn't allowed to receive a payment, could not get paid for their work, but they were allowed to receive gifts. So to support themselves, they would talk people into giving them gifts, and they became very professional at it, enough to be devouring widows' homes. You know, and, and their heart was for the money and not the, re, the, the reaction to it. I heard a story this morning of a, of a, guy, in a, a guy in Australia, and he was there at this company, been there a while. Um, he had the, the big corporation had taken notice of him, how well he was doing, how outgoing he was, how great he was in sales and all these things. And they decided, even though he was quite farther down the list of people to promote, they were going to promote him into a major position in this company to operate and run things because they were so impressed with it. And um, as he was at the, the kind of cafeteria area there where you know, kind of go through with these businesses and you pay for your lunch and stuff, the president of the corporation uh, was behind him in line that he didn't know and he was standing there behind him in line and he's watching him as he checked out and you know you pay for whatever you put on your plate as you check out kind of like a hospital thing and what he had done is he he had slid some butter and some things under his toast to hide them so he didn't have to pay for them when he left needlessly to say he wasn't promoted and needlessly say he didn't have a job who was so worried with the here and the now and the every dimes and stuff, and not about really being righteous, that no matter how much work and how much pretense he put out, the truth of what that man's heart was, was revealed. He had no clue who was behind him in line, who was watching, and ended up losing everything for it. And here, these people are so worried about what other people think and see, but yet in their hearts, in their hearts are, are, are wicked. And there's a, there's a price to be paid for those things. And so it's interesting as Jesus is here and he sees these guys and 
it's, it's just an example. Beware of them. Beware of them. This still rings true today. Beware of men that are like that. And when you say that and you, you read through this, maybe you guys have some you know, people popping your head. You know, Dave Guzik was joking, yeah, the second I read through this, I boom, TV evangelists start popping up in my head. You know, God's poor, out of money, he needs your money and all this. But when you listen and you slow down and you look at these people, listen, are they servants? Do you know them? You know, that's a, the thing that's hard about a lot of stuff. There's great benefits to being able to listen to different teaching online and stuff, but these are men you do not know. You don't know their fruit. You don't know their life. You don't know what they're like. You know what I mean? You don't know if they practice anything they preach. Right? I know that, you know, most of these churches have great editors. You know? You sit there and you look at it. When we were in the school of ministry, we went through uh, the Chuck Smith teaching series. And, and because of editing and technology, when you have to listen through all these teachings in a certain amount of time and you're in school, uh, it's, it's better to listen to them quickly, and they have a student version. And the difference between the version that came out in the C2000 series student version was all the pauses were taken out. Somebody, they went through, listened to them, they took out all the pausing and the laughs. So nobody ever laughs as a Chuck joke on the student versions because they take it out like this right away. You know, you don't got time for that. And then if you're really good and you get your computer set up, you can speed it up. To twice as fast. So now you're speed listening for your answer so you can get through your questions for the school ministry like I did because that's a very spiritual way of doing it. And, 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 you know, and so you're just trying to get through it. The only big problem I ran into was with that is when we went down to Costa Mesa and I'm sitting there in service and I just want to yell out, spit it out already. I mean, like this guy is going so slow. I mean, uh, like, man, he pauses a lot. I mean, he's I mean, I, he's, he's like half the speed of what I'm used to hearing. I mean, maybe he's just gotten slow in old age. No, I've sped him up so much. It was like, man, this guy just is so slow. You know, and, and you see those things. And with editing, there's all kinds of things you pull out, you know. They, they devise things. They put together arguments, you know. And, and these people were not after serving the people. They did not have a servant's heart, you know. One of the, the biggest things to look at or we look at when you're serving and, and any ministry and anything is you sit down and you get people come in. They want to come in with all this head theology and knowledge and look how bright I am. And I'm, that's nice. I'm glad you've studied in this and this. I want to see, are you a servant? Do you love people? Do you love people? Simple as that. If, if you're not a servant, I, I mean... No offense, you could be the greatest theologian in the world, but if he can use a dumb roofer like me, all he needs is somebody that loves people. And how do you know if somebody loves people? You watch them. You see how they act. You see God changing a heart in them. One of the first things I always seem to see when somebody actually truly repents is a heart for other people. They slowly can start to consider people other than themselves. These men were self-righteous, only concerned about what people thought of them, not concerned about anybody else or the consequences of their actions. Chapter 21, we kind of have a comparison here. That's where we're going to continue on here. Chapter 21, verse 1, and it says, And he looked up and he saw a rich, or saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he also saw a certain poor widow putting in two mites. So imagine the scene as he sits here and he makes a statement. He's sitting there with these religious leaders and he makes a statement. He's looking up and they have, a, you know, an offering box in, in, in the temple there. 
and, and the rich are coming in and giving their gifts and their treasures, you know, and they would, you know, come in and sometimes it'd be a big show of how much they put in, you know, and stuff. Um, there's, there's all, you can go everywhere with that as far as, you know, you know, you make sure you make a big thud in the thing or something, you know. Anyways, but you sit there and you, and you look at it and they would come in and be a show. And so he's watching this as this happens and he sees a certain widow putting two mites. And so he said, truly I say to you that this poor widow has put more in than all of these. For all of these out of their abundance put into the offering of God, but she has put out of her poverty in all the livelihood that she has. Now, two mites, you can go, and it's kind of funny, you look at some of these um, commentaries, and they compare them to other coins we don't have today. <laughs> so, you know, oh, two mites is two dots of two this or two that. Okay. So, to give you an idea, it would probably be about $2 in today's economy, okay? If a, if a good comparison made in 1970 was two quarters, probably now would be about two bucks. Okay, enough to get some food off the dollar menu, not a lot. And so, and she gave it, and even at that, the, the $2 she had, she gave all that she had. But all of us in here would be amazed if somebody, you found out somebody was giving half of everything they had. You'd be shocked. And even if they rarely had anything, if they were tied on money, could barely eat, and they gave half of what they had, we'd all be amazed. But yet her heart, she gave it all. And it wasn't the amount of the money, it was her heart. She had a right heart. Her heart was in the right place. It was focused on eternity. You know, it's, it's interesting. You sit down and you go, okay, she gave all that she had. It where, very possibly could be that the woman wasn't going to live much longer if she didn't have any money. There wasn't too much else she could do. It was actually taking a gamble on that. You know, in our, our culture, if you gave away everything you had, you could probably get out and beg and do pretty well. And this time in that place, you'd easily starve to death. Health and everything else, and you're a widow, you're in poverty because you've lost your husband and these things, it possibly cost her a life, but that didn't matter compared to what was coming. When, one thing in this, it, it always shocks me, I guess, a little in this culture when you sit there, you go to another country and you see these different things. We are so unaware of death in this country. We don't think about it. It scares us, the fact of death coming, you know, those things aren't there. I mean, even you go back, you look at the Black Plague and stuff, and man, I was looking at a thing and how many people estimatedly died from the Black Plague and all this, you know. But you sit there, and, and there's things. We even sing, uh, what is it, Rosie, Posy, Pocket Full of Posies, Dead. I mean, some of these things you sing that are like, how, how would that be a child's rhyme? I mean, that's horrible. No, it was common. Death is a normal part of life. Other cultures, other places, death is common, commonplace. It's not a shock. For us, it's like we can't, oh, how did they die? It's, a, it's just unbelievable in that sense. But it, even at this time, somebody dying and those things aren't there, when you're in a situation where your life can be easily taken from you, you're more focused on what's to come after. You're more focused out on the eternal. One of the major, funniest, interesting things where I think... Um, which is odd, is in the United States, we have the highest depression rate right now, most anxiety and highest depression rate. The best economy, arguably, in history, and we have the greatest depression rate and anxiety rate. Every time you have 
great prosperity, you have more depression and anxiety. Seems awesome, right? But yet, when you start to look back through history at some of the, the, the points where the anxiety was the lowest and people had the most confidence, it's like, wait, what? When was a joyous time? Well, you know, we were getting bombed from, uh, what was that company? Germany, and they already took over half the world, and depression was really down. Spirits were high. What? You're in England, and you're getting bombed, and that was actually one of the periods of times where there's less, least depression. I mean, it's like, maybe they just didn't bother. They figured everybody was depressed out. But you sat down there because eternal things were more important. We understood this life is short, and this isn't it. And when people slow down and you think, oh, there's no resurrection, this is it, and this is all you're focused on, it's very depressing. You know, it, it just, there isn't there. There isn't fulfillment. If this is it, it's horrible. And this woman, as she sits there and she gives all that she has in comparison to them and her righteousness and her thought of what God's doing and her desire to have this right standing with God with everything she has is such a contrast to those religious leaders. And God sits there and he recognizes and says, truly, she's, she's given more than all these men. Not just some of them. All these rich men, she's given more. Two things that shows me real quick. God doesn't care about how much money you have. And he doesn't need it. This isn't a thing of, oh, you should give everything you have like this poor little girl here, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. She gave all she had, so if you're rich and you give all she had. The dollar amount doesn't matter to him one bit. He doesn't need it. What he does want is your heart. There's the hard truth, right? He doesn't want your money or what else? Your religion, your righteousness, your self-righteousness, your performance, your other people's opinion about how religious you are. He doesn't care about that. You know, when you sit there and you look down and you look at your life and you're sitting there and there's all these things and pressures that can come on us of what we do for a living, what our job is, what we make, where our future is, um, what people think about us. Even more now on Facebook, you know, you look at all these apps and all the problems they're having with whatever these, you know, apps that change your face to look like other things so people don't even want to look at their own real face. They got to do, you know, these apps that modify you and everything else and make you look old and steal your credit card or whatever. But you slow down and you, you look at these things and you go, okay, what does God desire? What's important? People's view isn't important of you. There's not a single person's view that's important of you if God's isn't where it should be, if your heart's not right with God. How much money you have or any of those things doesn't matter. Another interesting thing about America, if I asked you, within, within three questions of somebody asking you who you are introducing, always comes up, what do you do? Right? What do you do? Other countries, that doesn't matter. You know that? What you do doesn't matter. What's more important is who your dad is, what village and what area you come from. Who you are is based on your family line and your this and this. Not, not to say it's right, but not on your job. You know, we here, we look at, oh, what somebody does for a living, what influence they have, what amount of money they have. I mean, what they do for a living explains all kinds of things, right? We make all kinds of judgments based on that. And so you look at these things and you see them and you go, okay, what's important? What's important is who's God, God's view of you. It's that daily relationship. That's the only thing that matters in light of eternity. And the amazing, most awesome thing is we get to have that now. We don't have to wait for eternity. We don't got to die to get it. Yes, heaven's going to be way more mind-blowing than it could ever be now. But you can sit there and you can wake up in the morning. You can open your word of God. You can have him speak to you. And you can have everything you need 
there. You can lay aside all these things. Nothing should come between you and God in that relationship. And it's one of those things just to look at this woman's heart and she gave all that she had. You know, God, God doesn't want all your money. He wants all of you. And I was thinking of this, of going, how, how do you illustrate this where it's clear? Because so many times we get distracted. And I, I was thinking, could you imagine if, if, you know, I just want to show my wife I love her very much, right? And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to get this cruise. And it's not just going to be any cruise. We're doing the Mediterranean Sea. We're going to Paris. We're going shopping. It is going to be the most expensive vacation ever. It's going to take 10 years of my salary to pay for it. She is going to be so happy. She's going to be pampered the whole time. Any of her desires are going to be met. And I give this cruise to my wife and say, okay, have fun. I'll catch you when you're done. I'm, I'm doing all these great things for her. Isn't she going to love that? Or would she rather just me take her out on whatever little I might have with all the lack of romantic bone I might have in my body, half dirty from work, I can go sit on a park bench somewhere and watch some birds. What do you think she's going to prefer? And somehow we think God would be different. God, I'm going to do all these great things. Look at this. Everybody would, everybody would say that's the romantic dream vacation of the world. But if he's not part of it, it's pointless. God wants your heart. God wants to sit next to you on a park bench. He doesn't care about how much money you make or anything else you have. He wants your heart. The cool thing with that is we can give him that. It's simple. It's just asking, God, change my heart. Open my eyes to these things. Right? If it was a dollar amount, some of us would be in trouble in here. If it was self-righteousness, we'd all be in trouble in here. What a simple thing that is. What an encouragement. What an amazing thing there is that we know there's an eternity. Yes, there's things that just, frankly, I go, I don't understand. i got to trust God. I know who you are. I know there's there. I know I'm not going to be sitting around on a cloud playing a harp with wings. To me, that would be very boring. You know, God knows me. God created me. He's going to change it. I mean, it's just not the way things are going to be. You know, you, you, I, re I remember so many times when I was a kid looking at things and, you know, you get these false or misconstrued versions of heaven and going, I don't know if I want to go there, you know. Of course, the way the world presents it, you know, heaven's going to be boring, playing harps all days, and everybody's going to be partying in hell. Nope, not the case. But when you slow down and you look at it and you go, okay, God, you want me. You want me. I don't know about you guys. That, that gives me great peace and great joy. And that I get to spend eternity. This isn't it. This isn't the end of it. This is, there's an afterlife. He is the God of me from now all the way to the end. Now, if he isn't Lord of you, that might be scary that God is God forever. That would be a freaky thing. But when you have a relationship with Jesus, when you know who he is, what a comfort that is, right? No matter what, I'm leaving. You know, when I, when I um, and I've shared this before, when I ended up uh, um, coming down and finding out I had cancer and, and you're going through that and it's just you find out, you never find out anything quick with that. You know, they don't know anything until they run more tests and find it, you know, and this and that. 
And, and so you sit there and you go, okay. I remember waking up one morning, sitting there going, okay, this might not be the reality, the body I'm in in the future. I don't know how bad it is. I, this, soon this could be not what I'm waking up to, not what I'm used to. This is going to possibly be different. And, and just praying, and I opened up, and I believe it's um, John 14, 3 says, I go and prepare a place for you that I may be when, where you are also, and I come and receive you to me. I'm not dying. He's coming and getting me. And that's what's happening. You know, I'm not losing. I'm not leaving. I'm not, oops, accident. You know, it's not like you're going to show up too early, and they're like, wait a minute. How did you get here already? I told that angel he should have taken those lunch union lunch breaks. Oops. No, it's just, you know, some of us are accident prone. So, But you sit there and you go, and when you realize that, he's coming to get us at a point. He loves us. He's going to receive us to him, and he's, he's waiting. He's anxiously waiting for us in that time. And, and what a peace knowing that, that, you know, if, if there is, I love my wife, I love my kids, I've, you know, many things I've loved, but... When I get to heaven, I'm not waiting, hoping to say, oh, I want to see my dad who's passed away. I want to see this person. I want to... No, I want to see my Savior face to face. Finally, to sit there. Finally, to sit there without all the junk in my heart making it so I can't see him clearly. Right? Just to be totally done with that. I don't know about you guys. You ever get in morning devotions and it seems like your heart and your mind just like fight? It's like, I just want to see him clearly. And, you know... Your neighbor turns on his lawnmower, and there it goes. You're just straight out evil, thinking about how to blow up his lawnmower so he can't mow the lawn so early, or what drugs he must be on to doing that, or something. I don't know. Anyway, so I digress. So what an amazing thing, and that's where it is. God wants your whole heart. He just wants to sit on that park bench with you. And so just take time and do that. What an awesome deal to be able to live in and a time to be able to live in. And just take time to do that, you know. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for who you are. We thank you that we can just sit next to you, Father. That our heart can just rest on you. And we can just take, just have peace in you and in your presence. And you're working in our hearts and our lives, God. We pray we would just not get distracted by anything of this world or trade anything for that relationship, that we would not even go halfway, but we would give all to just sit in your presence. God, that we would also just share that joy and hope of just that knowledge that we are going to be forever with you, with others, God. That we would be desiring just to serve and encourage each other to know you more. In Jesus' name, amen.